just just want to pray just quickly, and then we are turning to God's Word. This is a new series we are starting. Um, we're looking at, I guess, what it is to, to be like Jesus, to walk in His ways. Um, we're looking at a number of the different I Ams, but this morning we're starting off in a slightly different track. We'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. But Father, thank you for your presence with us already this morning. Lord, that just tangible sense of your spirit just upon us. Lord, how we need you. And so, Lord, even as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, just come, take your words from Scripture, take the words I have been putting together during this week, Lord God, and, Father, apply them to our hearts that we may be changed. And Lord, I pray as well, Lord, just lift, lift our level of expectation and excitement for the glory of your name. Amen. Over the last few months, there have been a number of prophetic words brought by by different people. And the theme of them has been fairly consistent call to repentance, to holy living, to removing anything that is not Christ-like. Yet at the same time, there's been this encouragement to seek after the presence of God. And what is interesting is that we have began to see a small yet gradual increase in the number of people who are gathering to worship and pray both in and outside of our organized prayer meetings. Alongside this, People are just wanting to stay longer. To use an old-fashioned word, they want to tarry, which means to linger in expectation. And it just feels as if there is a, just a change in the, in the spiritual atmosphere. And it, it's prompting that, that rather poignant question, what is God doing in contrast, we, we see, we look around at the state of our world and that in so many ways it just seems to be absol- in an absolute mess. The darkness appears to be getting darker. And as a nation, we, we don't know who we are anymore. Added to that, many individuals are just lost and confused. And in very simple terms, we are a nation who has forgotten God. But as Stephen Carnick wrote in the 1600s, a God forgotten is as good as no God to us at all. And the state of the Christian church today is reaching a desperate position because it's lost its fear of God. We have forgotten who he is. We, we don't take the time we should to read his word and to establish the truth of his attributes and his character The truth of God's word is being eroded in many of the pulpits up and down our country. So it's all too easy for Christians to live like functional atheists. Very possible to have an atheistic heart without an atheistic head. 
So even though you would never doubt the existence of God, and we would spend time even defending him, yet it's possible to have a heart that is still empty of affection towards him, where sin dominates our desires, not Christ, with our, our instincts are towards rebellion, not towards obedience. And I know this sounds harsh and bleak, but it's the hard reality that we need to face up to. The church in our nation needs revival like never before. Yet, as I've already said, there is a growing expectation at the moment, a glimmer of hope for real breakthrough, because history shows us that even in the most desperate of times, God pours out his spirit with power and with holy fire. And we really need a manifest presence of the glory of God. Shortly before Smith Wigglesworth died, he delivered a prophecy. Now, Wigglesworth was a plumber who was powerfully used in worldwide ministry of evangelism. He saw many miraculous healings and miracles as he preached the word of God. This is the prophecy that he gave in 1947. Read it. During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by the restoration of the baptism and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historical churches and planting new churches. New frontiers, Christ centered, the church we're part of, in a sense, is a fulfillment of that part of the prophecy. Goes on. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, This is a great revival. But the Lord says, No. Neither is this the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidence in the churches of something that is not seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest move of the Holy Spirit that the nations and indeed the world have ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the, the UK, the United Kingdom, to mainland Europe. And from there, we'll begin a, min a missionary move to the ends of the earth. There are many people at the moment who are wondering, who are hoping, if we are going to see such a move of God in our lifetime. 
Now, of course, every prophetic word needs to be weighed up in the light of Scripture, but whether, whether you put significance on that word or not, I don't think that there's anyone who loves Jesus who will disagree that our nation needs another outpouring of God's Spirit. Our nation needs revival. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the Great Awakenings and will have read stories of men like Jonathan Edwards, and George Whitfield in the 18th century. You may also be familiar with the, the stories of the 1905 Welsh Revival, how God used Evan Roberts to radically change the nation of Wales at the beginning of the last century. Then there was the Hebridean Revival led by Duncan Campbell in the 1950s that resulted in crime ceasing police jails just left unused because virtually every person on the island of Lewis and Harris were saved during that three-year revival. You can understand why Duncan Campbell describes revival as a community saturated with God. And I wonder, are you hungry for another outpouring of God's Spirit in our generation. What about in our city? And I'm, I'm prepared to be wrong, but I just feel this growing sense that as God's people, we need to be ready. We need to align ourselves with Jesus Christ. So over the next few months in our preaching, we, we plan to set out some foundations of what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus and what it means to follow him. But today I want to begin with a story from Genesis chapter 26, and I, I, I think it's helpful. You pick it up in verse 12. I'm just going to read the passage. Genesis 26, verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. He reopened the wells his father had dug, and the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given them. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But then the shepherds from Gerar came and, and claimed the spring. This is our water, they said, and they argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen. So Isaac named the well Essek, which means argument. Isaac's men also then dug another well, but again there was a dispute over it. So Isaac named named it Sitna, which means hostility. Abandoning that one, Isaac moved on and dug another well. This time, there was no dispute over it. So Isaac named the place 
Rehoboth, which means open space. For he said, at last the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. From there, Isaac moved to Bathsheba, where the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I am the God of your father Abraham, he said. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants, and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of the promise to Abraham, my servant. Then Isaac built an altar there and worshipped the Lord. He set up his camp at that place, and his servants dug another well. After the worship and prayer time that we had at Freedom on the last Sunday of January, a prophetic word was brought about digging. And the main point of it was a call to purity, to holy living, similar to what I have already mentioned at the beginning of this talk. The following morning, I woke up with this story, the story of Isaac and the digging of wells in my head. It's a rare thing. I, not that I wake up. I wake up most mornings very slowly. I've got to admit, but I do come around eventually. But the fact that I wake up with, a, with this verse just lingering, just running around in my head, particularly from Genesis 26 and verse 18, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Another translation says, he reopened the wells his father had dug. And this is what I think God may be saying to us. First, we need to realize that God's blessing does not guarantee freedom from problems. Yet, Isaac is still blessed in accordance with God's promises, not because of anything that he has done or not done. Secondly, you need to also notice that the outcome of God's blessing is more trouble. For Isaac, it was the Philistines who were envious. In verse 14, they attempted literally to block his progress. So he is invited, well, sort of invited, to move away from Abimelech. In fact, Isaac has to keep moving until eventually he is far enough away from the Philistines to settle And the name of the wells tell the story, verse 20, dispute, verse 21, opposition. And then we come to a third well that was dug called room, verse 22. And finally, it is here that the Lord gives him room to flourish. It would seem that despite Isaac's best efforts to botch everything up, God continues to protect, to rescue, and to restore him. Amazingly, God's commitment to his covenant with this man overcomes all opposition and and disobedience, even, even from Isaac himself. And this should be an encouragement to, to all of us. So the question that God has put upon my heart is this. What are the wells that we, as God's people, need to redig? 
are there springs of living water that need to be unblocked in our lives and in our church communities so that the Spirit of God can really flow? What needs to be put in place in order to create spaces where there is room for us to rest in God's presence and just spiritually flourish? These are some of my thoughts. First is this. God's word is important and essential. This is our foundation. His word must be greatly emphasized. The scripture should be studied and obeyed as authoritative, as true, and as living. Just as Isaac built his hope on the word and on the promises of God, so must we. You see, for Isaac, the unblocking of wells was more than just a physical act. In opening the wells of his father, he was aligning himself with the unchanging, the unfailing promises of God. And as God's people, it's essential that we make it very clear how important God's truth is to all people. God's word and God's ways are foundation and are the foundation and also the determining factor that we must align ourselves with in every single choice that we make, but especially when it comes to dealing with the, the sticky social and ethical issues that are all around us. Perhaps more than ever, we need to stand on biblical truth. Scripture is to be trusted. I cannot think of another time in church history where the Word of God has been under such an attack from outside the church, but especially from inside the church. So again, we must stand firm on God's Word. It is our plumb line. It is our anchor. God's Word can be trusted, so read it and use it as the compass for your life. Secondly, God is universally sovereign. He has no limit or limitation. And listen, he can use anything or can use anyone to fulfill his word. In this story, God uses the Philistines to direct Isaac to an open space where he can worship God. And we can be confident that God is still working among his people. But don't be surprised when he uses the most unlikely of people to bring about his purposes. Thirdly, worship of God is absolutely necessary. Nothing must supersede our worship of God. It is through worship that we meet with God. We hear his voice. We grow in love and in, in expectation. Listen, if you read church history, you will find a number of markers that are seen in every revival. And one of the biggest is the resurgence of worship and prayer. Fourthly, obedience to God is not optional. It is compulsory. Sometimes it comes at a very high price. However, it must not be done in a legalistic sense. Instead, obedience 
is the most natural and the most normal response to the grace and to the love of Christ. Obedience is a Holy Spirit-dependent responsibility that every believer is called to live out every single day. Fifthly, hard work is necessary for obedience and for worship. Digging wells is not an easy job. It can be time-consuming, it can be difficult, it can be challenging work, so we must joyfully work with determination to complete what God has called us to do for the glory of his name. Sixthly, change is necessary. We need to be willing to seek the will and the direction of God and to live as God calls us to live. And sometimes that means we need to be willing to change. If God is calling us into a place where there is room for us to flourish in the presence of God, we need, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to create those open spaces. We need time in His presence. So the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is this. What needs to change in my life? What needs to be put down in order to allow this to happen? Seventhly, opposition is real. So we must expect it and be prepared for it. But listen, opposition to God's people doing God's work is not a reason to stop. We do need to use wisdom and discernment, and although we don't go looking for trouble, but when it comes, we don't give up, and actually we dig deeper into the promises and into the blessings of God. Number eight, encouragement is always needed. Where there is opposition, it will cause discouragement. See, when Isaac arrived at Beersheba, I'm pretty sure he was fed up. He's just come from the place of dispute and a place of opposition. Then the Lord appears to him and says, I am the God of your father Abraham. He says, don't be afraid. Why? For I am with you and will bless you. I will multiply your descendants and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham my servant, reminding ourselves of the promises of God and our hope in Christ dispels discouragement. But alongside that, we also need to be encouraging one another and to be building up each other, not tearing one another down. Encouragement is a wonderful but often underrated gift of the Holy Spirit. Nine. Godly uniqueness should characterize God's people. In other words, as Christians, we should behave differently to those around us. Bad relations, wrong associations can really undermine godly character. But be careful. So be careful about who you're spending all of your time with. But even as we 
but, it, but even though we should be different from the world around us, we must avoid even the hint of isolationism or separatism. But we need to be the distinctive people of God. And for this to be possible, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need him. Because we are called to be a church who is saturated with God. Number 10. Know that God is with you. He is intimately involved in our lives. The promise to Isaac is is also our promise as well. God says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6, we read how Ezra did the impossible in rebuilding the temple. And listen, he explains how he did it. He says, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Know beyond doubt that God is with you. 11. Prayer is fundamental and indispensable. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, it tells us, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, we need to live each day as people of prayer which means that we should have this ongoing conversation with our Heavenly Father. Now, sometimes our prayers will be brief, one or two words, help, good short prayer. Other times, they will be long as we linger in His presence. But the truth is that prayer is the key to revival. Lastly, 12 good 12-point sermon. Repentance is the, is the basis to a godly life. Be willing to confess your sins. Take responsibility. Pay the price and take correction. In the last few months, I have seen a greater openness in people talking about the temptations and the sins that they are battling with and perhaps I have seen in, in the last 10 years. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings conviction, not condemnation, but he brings conviction. There's no getting around the fact that confession is critical to repentance. However, I'm not advocating that we stand up at the front of church and then offload all our deepest, darkest sins. Yet confession to one or two trusted friends will truly unlock the enemy's hold over a person's life, will bring deliverance and will bring healing. And this is also another hallmark of revival. The theologian and revivalist Jonathan Edwards was an extreme example of this. 
He was noted for, among other things, his 70, yes, 70 resolutions to regulate his heart and his life. All of them were written down before he was 20 years old. And these resolutions were so severe that they were beyond the comprehension of most present-day Christians. Let me give you two examples. He resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. It's a good one. He resolved never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. It is said that Edwards would review these weekly to keep them fresh within his mind, but this is the key. He also recognized his dependence on God. So he started these resolutions with this sentence, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. In fact, in his Later on in his life, he acknowledged that in those early years, his pursuit of holiness was done with too much dependence on his own strength. And he said, it only highlighted my extreme feebleness and the bottomless depth of secret corruption and deceit that was in my heart. And we must learn the lesson because even in our desire to live a holy, repentant life, and listen, we are called to live a holy, repentant life before God. We must not step outside of God's grace. As John 15, verse 5 puts it, without him, without Christ, we can do nothing. Now, I'm sure you agree with that as I do, but this must become more than just theoretical head knowledge. It must be something that you live out, that you experience within your life. So perhaps one of the reasons why we struggle with sin, why sometimes the Holy Spirit may even withhold His power from us, is to allow us to see at first hand our own feebleness and the darkness of our hearts so that we may, we may know our complete, in fact, our utter dependency on God so when we feel, and we will feel, in our struggle with sin, we must go back to the gospel to see Jesus bearing that very sin on his body on the cross and at the same time clothing us with his righteousness, his unmerited love for you is what gives you courage and the motivation to press on in the pursuit of holiness and righteousness, even in the middle of your failures. And as you pursue a humble, obedient, holy life, I believe it will unblock fresh springs of living power and bring you into an open space, a place where there is room to flourish in God's presence. And as together we dig deeper into God and enjoy the living waters of the Spirit, He will change our hearts, our family, our church, our city, our nation. Dare, dare we begin to believe for revival. And if we do, we must remember 
that it will, it will begin with God's people, with His church. It begins with us. It's what Charles Finney described as the renewal of the first love of Christians, resulting in the awakening and the conversion of sinners to God. It is the echo, it's to echo the heart cry of Jonathan Edwards. I wish to lie low before God as in the dust that I might be nothing and that God might be all, that I might become as a little child. A Robert Murray McShane, I am persuaded that I ought to be inquiring of God how I may overcome self and become more like Christ. I ought to strive for more purity, humility, meekness, patience, under suffering, love. Make me Christ-like in all things should be my constant prayer and fill me with thy Holy Spirit. <laughs> All of these men were used mightily by God, saw their communities transformed. Today, I believe God is calling us to be a people who are willing to dig deeper into the promises of God, to reopen the wells of God's promises to live in the open space of God's presence, to be men and women of the Word and the Spirit, to be ready to stand together.